Section 11 of The Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Paul Johnson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1, Section 11. Selections from the History of the United States by Henry Adams. Henry Adams, 1838-1918. The gifts of expression and literary taste which have always characterized the Adams family are most prominently represented by this historian. He has also its great memory, power of acquisition, intellectual independence, and energy of nature. The latter is tempered in him with inherited self-control, the moderation of judgment bred by wide historical knowledge, and a pervasive atmosphere of literary good breeding, which constantly substitutes elusive irony for crude statement, the rapier for the tomahawk. Henry Adams is the third son of Charles Francis Adams, Sr., the able minister to England during the Civil War, and grandson of John Quincy Adams. He was born in Boston, February sixteenth, eighteen thirty eight graduated from Harvard in 1858, and served as private secretary to his father in England. In 1870 he became editor of the North American Review and professor of history at Harvard, in which place he won wide repute for originality and power of inspiring enthusiasm for research in his pupils. He has written several essays and books on historical subjects, and edited others, Essays on Anglo-Saxon Law, 1876. Documents Relating to New England Federalism, 1877. Albert Gallatin, 1879. Writings of Albert Gallatin, 1879. John Randolph, 1882. In the American Statesman Series, and Historical Essays. But his great life work and monument is his History of the United States, 1801-1817, The Jefferson and Madison Administrations. To write, which he left his professorship in 1877, and after passing many years in London, in other foreign capitals, in Washington, and elsewhere, studying archives, family papers, published works, shipyards, and many other things in preparation for it, published the first volume in 1889, and the last in 1891. It is in nine volumes, of which the introductory chapters and the index make up one. The work, in its inception, though not in its execution, is a polemic tract, a family vindication, an act of pious duty. Its subtitle might be, A Justification of John Quincy Adams for Breaking with the Federalist Party. So taken, the reader who loves historical fights and seriously desires truth should read the chapters on the Hartford Convention and its preliminaries side by side, with the corresponding pages of Henry Cabot Lodge's Life of George Cabot. If he cannot judge from the pleadings of these two able advocates with briefs for different sides, it is not for lack of full exposition. But the history is far more and higher than a piece of special pleading. It is, in the main, both as to domestic and international matters, a resolutely cool and impartial presentation of facts and judgments on all sides of a period where passionate partisanship lies almost in the very essence of the questions.
a tone contrasting oddly with the political action and feeling of the two presidents even where as toward the new england federalists many readers will consider him unfair in his deductions he never tampers with or unfairly proportions the fact the work is a model of patient study not alone of what is conventionally accepted as historic material but of all subsidiary matter necessary to expert discussion of the problems involved he goes deeply into economic and social facts he has instructed himself in military science like a west point student in army needs like a quartermaster in naval construction equipment and management like a naval officer of purely literary qualities the history presents a high order of constructive art in amassing minute details without obscuring the main outlines luminous statement and the results of a very powerful memory which enables him to keep before his vision every incident of the long chronicle with its involved groupings so that an armory of instructive comparisons as well as of polemic missiles is constantly ready to his hand he follows the latest historical canons as to giving authorities the history advances many novel views and controverts many accepted facts the relation of napoleon's warfare against haiti and Toussaint to the great continental struggle and the position he assigns it as the turning point of that greater contest is perhaps the most important of these but almost as striking are his views on the impressment problem and the provocations of the war of eighteen twelve wherein he leads to the most unexpected deduction namely that the grievances on both sides were much greater than is generally supposed he shows that the profit and security of the american merchant service drew thousands of english seamen into it where they changed their names and passed for american citizens greatly embarrassing english naval operations on the other hand he shows that english outrages and insults were so gross that no nation with spirit enough to be entitled to separate existence ought to have endured them he reverses the severe popular judgment on madison for consenting to the war on the assumed ground of coveting another term as president which every other historian and biographer from hildreth to sidney howard gay has pronounced and which has become a stock historical convention holds jackson's campaign ending at new orleans an imbecile undertaking redeemed only by an act of instinctive pugnancy at the end gives scott and jacob brown the honor they have never before received in fair measure and in many other points redistributes praise and blame with entire independence and with curious effect on many popular ideas his views on the hartford convention of eighteen fourteen are part of the federalist controversy already referred to the auspices of the war of eighteen twelve from the history of the united states eighteen ninety the american declaration of war against england july eighteenth eighteen twelve annoyed those european nations that were gathering their utmost resources for resistance to napoleon's attack russia could not but regard it as an unfriendly act equally bad for political and commercial interests spain and portugal whose armies were fed largely if not chiefly on american grain imported by british money under british protection dreaded to see their supplies cut off 
Germany, waiting only for strength to recover her freedom, had to reckon against one more element in Napoleon's vast military resources. England needed to make greater efforts in order to maintain the advantages she had gained in Russia and Spain. Even in America no one doubted the earnestness of England's wish for peace. And if Madison and Monroe insisted on her acquiescence in their terms, they insisted because they believed that their military position entitled them to expect it. The reconquest of Russia and Spain by Napoleon, an event almost certain to happen, could hardly fail to force from England the concessions, not in themselves unreasonable, which the United States required. This was, as Madison to the end of his life maintained, quote, a fair calculation, end quote. But it was exasperating to England, who thought that America ought to be equally interested with Europe in overthrowing the military depotism of Napoleon, and should not conspire with him for gain. At first the new war disconcerted the feeble ministry that remained in office on the death of Spencer Percival. They counted on preventing it and did their utmost to stop it after it was begun. The tone of arrogance which had so long characterized government and press disappeared for the moment. Obscure newspapers, like the London Evening Star, still sneered at the idea that Great Britain was to be, quote, driven from the proud preeminence which the blood and treasure of her sons have attained for her among the nations, by a piece of striped bunting flying at the mastheads of a few fur-built frigates, manned by a handful of bastards and outlaws, end quote. a phrase which had great success in America. But such defiances expressed a temper studiously held in restraint, previous to the moment when the war was seen to be inevitable. The realization that no escape could be found from an American war was forced on the British public at a moment of much discouragement. Almost simultaneously a series of misfortunes occurred which brought the stoutest and most intelligent Englishmen to the verge of despair. In Spain, Wellington, after winning the Battle of Salamanca in July, occupied Madrid in August, and obliged Saoult to evacuate Andalusia. But his siege of Burgos failed, and as the French generals concentrated their scattered forces, Wellington was obliged to abandon Madrid once more. October 21st, he was again in full retreat on Portugal. The apparent failure of his campaign was almost simultaneous with the apparent success of Napoleon's, for the emperor entered Moscow September 14th, and the news of this triumph, probably decisive of Russian submission, reached England about October 3rd. Three days later arrived intelligence of William Hull's surrender at Detroit, but this success was counterbalanced by simultaneous news of Isaac Hull's startling capture of the Guerriere and the certainty of a prolonged war. In the desponding condition of the British people, with a deficit harvest, bad weather, wheat at nearly five dollars a bushel, and the American supply likely to be cut off, consoles at fifty-seven and a half, gold thirty per cent premium, a ministry without credit or authority, and a general consciousness of blunders, incompetence, and corruption, every new tale of disaster sank the hopes of England, and called out wails of despair. In that state of mind, the loss of the Guerriere assumed portentous dimensions. The Times was especially loud in lamenting the capture. Quote, we witnessed the gloom which that event cast over high and honorable minds, 
Never before in history of the world did an English frigate strike to an American, and though we cannot say that Captain Dacres, under all the circumstances, is punishable for this act, yet we do say there are commanders in the English navy who would, a thousand times, rather have gone down with their colors flying than to have set their fellow sailors so fatal an example." No country newspaper in America, railing at Hull's cowardice and treachery, showed less knowledge or judgment than the London Times, which had written of nothing but war since its name had been known in England. Any American could have assured the English press that British frigates before the Guerriere had struck to American, and even in England men had not forgotten the name of the British frigate Serapis, or that of the American Captain Paul Jones. Yet the Times' ignorance was less unreasonable than its requirement that Dacres should have gone down with his ship. A cry of passion, the more unjust to Dacres, because he fought his ship as long as she could float. Such sensitiveness seemed extravagant in a society which had been hardened by centuries of warfare. Yet the Times reflected fairly the feelings of Englishmen. George Canning, speaking in open Parliament not long afterward, said that the loss of the Guerriere and the Macedonian produced a sensation in the country scarcely to be equalled by the most violent convulsions of nature. Quote, Neither can I agree with those who complain of the shock of consternation throughout Great Britain as having been greater than the occasion required. It cannot be too deeply felt that the sacred spell of the invincibility of the British navy was broken by those unfortunate captures. End quote. Of all spells that could be cast on a nation, that of believing itself invincible was perhaps the one most profitably broken. But the process of recovering its senses was agreeable to no nation. And to England, at that moment of distress, it was as painful as Canning described. The matter was not mended by the courier and morning post, who, taking their tone from the admiralty, complained of the enormous superiority of the American frigates, and called them, quote, line of battleships in disguise, end quote. Certainly the American 44 was a much heavier ship than the British 38, but the difference had been as well known in British Navy before these actions as it was afterward. And Captain Dacres himself, the Englishman who best knew the relative force of the ships, told his court of inquiry a different story. Quote, I am so well aware that the success of my opponent was owing to fortune, that it is my earnest wish and would be the happiest period of my life to be once more opposed to the Constitution, with them, the old crew, under my command, in a frigate of similar force with the Guerriere. End quote. After all had been said, the unpleasant result remained that in future British frigates, like other frigates, could safely fight only their inferiors in force. What applied to the Guerriere and Macedonian against the Constitution and United States, where the British force was inferior, applied equally to the frolic against the Wasp, where no inferiority could be shown. The British newspapers thenceforth admitted what America wished to prove, that ship for ship, British were no more than the equals of Americans. Society soon learned to take a more sensible view of the subject, but as the first depression passed away, a consciousness of personal wrong took its place. The United States were supposed to have stabbed England in the back at the moment when her hands were tied, when her existence was in the most deadly peril, and her anxieties were most heavy. England, 
never could forgive treason so base and cowardice so vile, that Madison had been from the first a tool and accomplice of Bonaparte, was thenceforth so fixed an idea in British history that time could not shake it. Indeed, so complicated and so historical had the causes of war become that no one, even in America, could explain or understand them. While Englishmen could see only that America required England as the price of peace to destroy herself by abandoning her naval power, and that England preferred to die fighting rather than to die by her own hand. The American party in England was extinguished, no further protest was heard against the war, and the British people thought moodily of revenge. This result was unfortunate for both parties, but was doubly unfortunate for America, because her mode of making the issue told in her enemy's favor. The same impressions which silenced in England opened sympathy with America, stimulated in America acute sympathy with England. Argument was useless against people in a passion, convinced of their own injuries. Neither Englishmen nor Federalists were open to reasoning. They found their action easy from the moment they classed the United States as an ally of France, like Bavaria or Saxony, and they had no scruples of conscience, for the practical alliance was clear and the fact proved sufficiently the intent. The loss of two or three thirty-eight-gun frigates on the ocean was a matter of trifling consequence to the British government, which had a force of four ships of the line, and six or eight frigates in Chesapeake Bay alone, and which built every year dozens of ships of the line and frigates to replace those lost or worn out. But although American privateers wrought more injury to British interests than was caused or could be caused by the American navy, the pride of England cared little about mercantile losses, and cared immensely for its fighting reputation. The theory that the American was a degenerate Englishman, a theory chiefly due to American teachings, lay at the bottom of British politics. Even the late British minister at Washington, Foster, a man of average intelligence, thought it manifest good taste and good sense to say of the Americans in his speech of February 18, 1813, in Parliament, that, quote, generally speaking, they were not a people we should be proud to acknowledge as our relations, end quote. Decatur and Hull were engaged in a social rather than in a political contest, and were aware that the serious work on their hands had little to do with England's power, but much to do with her manners. The mortification of England at the capture of her frigates was the measure of her previous arrogance. Every country must begin war by asserting that it will never give way, and of all countries England, which had waged innumerable wars, knew best when perseverance cost more than concession. Even at that early moment Parliament was evidently perplexed, and would willingly have yielded had it seen means of escape from its naval fetish impressment. Perhaps the perplexity was more evident in the Commons than in the Lords, for Castlereagh, while defending his own course with elaborate care, visibly stumbled over the right of impressment. Even while claiming that its abandonment would have been, quote, vitally dangerous, if not fatal, end quote, to England's security, he added that he, quote, would be the last man in the world to underrate the inconvenience which the Americans sustained in consequence of our assertion of the right of search. End quote. 
The embarrassment became still plainer when he narrowed the question to one of statistics, and showed that the whole contest was waged over the forcible retention of some eight hundred seamen, among one hundred and forty-five thousand employed in British service. Granting the number were twice as great, he continued, quote, Would the House believe that there was any man so infatuated, or that the British Empire was driven to such straits, that for such a paltry consideration as seventeen hundred sailors, His Majesty's government would needlessly irritate the pride of a neutral nation, or violate that justice which was due to one country from another? If Liverpool's argument explained the causes of war, Castlereagh's explained its inevitable result. For since the war must cost England at least ten million pounds a year, could Parliament be so infatuated as to pay ten thousand pounds a year for each American sailor detained in service, when one-tenth of the amount, if employed in raising the wages of the British sailor, would bring any required number of seamen back to their ships? The whole British navy in 1812 cost twenty million pounds. The payroll amounted to only three million pounds. The common sailor was paid four pounds bounty and eighteen pounds a year which might have been troubled at half the cost of an American war. End of section 11